0: It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength the conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast series. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. This is episode 156. This is our question and answer session that Dr. Baraki and I did at the San Antonio seminar earlier this year. We go over a wide range of topics from testosterone to troubleshooting training. This one's going to be good. I know that you guys are going to like it. Before we hop into this week's podcast, a few announcements. We do have a two-day barbell medicine seminar next month at Alan Thrall's gym in Sacramento, California. We also have our date in Philadelphia. That's in March. And we added a new seminar date that's at the new Ghost Gym in Miami that will be taking place at the end of January. So check out the link in the description below if you want to attend one of the barbell medicine seminars. Also, finally, our new apparel drop is live over on the website. We've got hoodies, new comp t-shirt designs, and some other spooky season approved t-shirt designs that I know that you're going to love. Uh, they are, again, in limited quantities. So if you're interested in repping Barbell Medicine to the gym, head over to the website. The link is in the description below and uh, get your gear today. All right, without any further ado, let's hop into this week's podcast. Uh, all right, question number one. How do you effectively balance training so you are still making improvements but aren't functionally useless the next day or two or even longer? Just sidebar, when was
1: the last training session that you had that just laid you out completely? It's been many, many, many years. Probably the last one I could remember was like probably about the time when I quit Texas Method. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) program that I would not do again. (laughs) I think, I mean, the
0: last time that I was so sore – Or like just beaten down after a training session is when we went to that CrossFit uh, level 1 MD thing. In Hawaii. In Hawaii. And I remember we were walking to the car and I was like there's a disturbance in the force. And you're like quads? I'm like yeah. But I wasn't like useless. I was just annoyed because then I couldn't
1: really train productively the next time I wanted to train. Oh you mean so at the seminar they actually made us do a couple wads with them. Yes. That's the that was why that happened to you. Yeah. My favorite
0: part of that whole experience was Austin and I were in different squat groups, so they're trying to teach us the squat, and. Uh with PVC pipe, right, it's the front squat and my front squat is terrible. I like to blame my anthropometry. Austin likes to blame my lack of athleticism but I'm being told there with the PVC pipe like wedged up against my beard. This guy's like beautiful front rack position, excellent mobility or whatever and Austin is in the corner getting squat therapy because apparently he's got butt wink or something at the bottom (laughs) of his squat and it's taking everything in my power not to start laughing at him. That's my favorite part of that besides random glassman sort of excerpts but to answer this question um i don't know that at any point in my training career uh since i've been using auto regulation and actually kind of been thinking more about my the process of of getting stronger that i've been so sore or so tired after a training session that it's actually made a difference in anything i've done afterwards i mean during the best most productive years training wise of my life i took all of my boards i you know did my intern year in residency, I've graduated medical school, like started this business, like whatever. So at no point was my, I guess cognitive function impaired significantly (laughs) at no point did i have to miss a training session because i was like too sore there's been modifications but those are all kind of baked into the training which is the idea like your training session should meet you where you're at on a given day based on your performance potential and that performance potential is intimately related to how great you're how good you're feeling right how well you're functioning which you can only tell like when you're in the gym right we all have like indicator weights For certain movements like you hit this weight and you're like all right did that move fast or slow kind of tells you like am i going to be stronger than normal or or not quite as strong on a given day and on average you know again it's a bell curve kind of thing most days an average level of strength some days are better than others but i to answer this particular question i think if you're routinely feeling beat up and like your personal life professional life is suffering secondary to training i would question i would the training program probably needs to be adjusted. And if it's one of our training programs, which is possible, I mean, I had a guy come up and say he's running one of our hypertrophy templates and he's like, I've never been more sore in my entire life. And I'm like, instead of like, I don't know if you wanted to tap on the back, right? Like, yeah, brother, you're <laughs> this is good for you. I was like, hey man, I'd probably lower the RPE, target RPE of each set by two or so. The idea is like maybe he's either overshooting or going to failure or close to failure too often. Um, or otherwise sort of maybe imparting too much stress for what he can currently handle and that's kind of leaving him feeling
1: beat up and and tired and whatnot so that's how i would address this is is adjust the training stress yeah the first thing i think of when i hear that somebody is feeling useless for two days after a training session is this is a major programming issue you're either doing too much or what you're doing is too hard so those are my usual interventions at that time point is probably up front I'm going to look at the program and if it seems like a reasonable dosage of training I'm going to bump the RPE targets down by a, a point or two or whatever yep. some made up amount and see how they do if it seems like maybe you started training you know not that long ago and you're probably doing more than I would expect you to need at this point in your training maybe I'll trim off some back offsets or something like that mm-hmm. I might adjust the volume but you should never feel that destroyed from your training. It's not a badge of honor. It doesn't make you better than anybody else. And it is probably not the best way to go about your training if you want to train consistently and kind of build momentum and build progress over time. I really, I mean, even, even back then, that time that I was alluding to, I still was not like put out for two days. I just felt you know, more fatigued than usual. Um, so I don't know that I've ever felt functionally useless for a day or two after a training session. At this point, I don't even really get particularly sore at all anymore.
0: unless it's a really new exercise or something yeah, yeah
1: with new exercises that's kind of expected but to jordan you know jordan was making the point during the last lecture that we're not aiming to continually overload people and make stuff harder in an effort to force adaptations to happen rather if the training is set up appropriately you will adapt and be able to demonstrate that by increasing your loads in subsequent sessions So earlier this past week, I had one of the best, I've actually, this last week was one of the best training weeks I had. And on my main deadlift day this past week, I pulled heavier than I have in a while. So I pulled like 660 for a double. It was quite easy, a bunch of back off work, a bunch of other movements um, that day. And after I finished, I told Tom, I said, you know, if I had to rate like the session RPE of this, it was like a six like these are some of the heaviest weights i've lifted in a while but everything moved fast i felt really strong i didn't feel particularly beat up i could have done way more sets i could have gone way closer to failure but that's what i had in me on the day for the programming that was uh that was there i took it felt strong felt great the session even though it was very heavy relative to my recent performance it did not crush me and i felt fine afterwards and i felt fine since so training should not be destroying you Would not recommend you go to that that point. So some adjustments are in order. Yeah. And I think that if you're regularly feeling that way,
0: just got to change the training. Yeah. Can't
1: eat your way out of that. Can't sleep your way out of that. No.
0: You can only program your way out of that. Yeah. All right. Why is there an idea that olive oil is healthier than canola oil when replacing saturated fats with polyunsaturated versus monounsaturated? I think I understand the question. It's kind of phrased strangely. Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah. Oh, here's the other p- question, though, before... I'm going to let you finish. Okay. I, I don't know that anyone's arguing over, like, olive oil versus canola oil. Like, like there's a canola oil... Like, oh, they are. Well, no, what... what <laughs> I, they definitely are. What I'm getting at is that I don't know that, like, acad- like people in, in academ- academia oh, yeah. are arguing about this. Right. I think people who are, like, big seed oil, like you know, conspiracy theorists, 100%. (laughs) Those are the people who are irrelevant because they make up, you know, very small proportion, but very vocal, mind you. So from a social learning perspective, they are relevant, but as far as like a policy opinion, you know, informed status level, they, you know, I'm not unconcerned with their opinions. So what I'm getting at is like actual professionals and experts in the field are not arguing about this. It's only like the seed oil conspiracy theorists. And they're like, I think you're probably right. Olive oil versus canola oil. Like, again, I'm not like the olive oil, like, you know, big subsidiaries aren't aren't like, (laughs) yo, canola oil, you suck. And, you know, canola oil (laughs) is on their side. No, olive oil, we're perfectly health promoting. It's like that's not
1: happening. Yeah. I think that there are there's a fair amount of research. You know, this to, to lay the background just as a reminder is that we talked about in the. Lipid lecture how for individuals who are consuming high amounts of calories from saturated fatty acids, so that's like when we say over 18, 20 percent of their calories are coming from saturated fats, things like butter and red meat sources and things like that, taking a portion of that, replacing it with an alternative source of fatty acids like polyunsaturated, monounsaturated fats, tends to very consistently result in improvements in both cardiovascular risk factors and ultimate cardiovascular risk. Going from that high intake to low shows a very consistent effect. We have plenty of evidence in the kind of Mediterranean diet realm, and that Mediterranean diet is classically associated with foods like olive oil. And so that's probably where that uh, gen- general population idea or understanding comes from is associating Mediterranean diet as a healthy dietary pattern that has olive oil. There you go. But actually, you're right, when you look at the actual research on this, the actual evidence of these replacement nutrients in controlled trials, canola oil actually shows further reduction in mm-hmm. like your blood lipids, blood cholesterol, even when it's replacing, not just when it's replacing saturated fats, but when it's replacing olive oil, you actually see further reductions in your blood cholesterol levels and blood, blood lipid parameters. This hasn't been tested necessarily head to head. These two like oils with everything else in the diet, equivalent for actual cardiovascular events like heart attacks and strokes and things like that. Um, but there is for anybody who is interested in this topic and wants a reference there's, there's a large uh, meta-analysis on the topic titled the effects of canola oil on cardiovascular risk factors and that's you, that will be sufficient to find it where they look at canola oil replacing various other nutrient nutrient sources and showing the effects on things like blood lipids blood cholesterol parameters things like that and it shows a, an improvement in risk so um yeah there is not much controversy over this idea that polyunsaturated fatty acid sources, when replacing saturated fatty acid sources at high levels of intake, show the most potent reduction in risk factors and actual cardiovascular risk, um, but the controversy does exist among people who are less informed on the topic
0: yeah, so I just feel like you just chew them away <laughs> yeah. the other The other part is like if somebody's super concerned about their seed oil intake, I, I think that in general that 's like such a privileged level for like their dietary pattern and you know potential for health-promoting behaviors. It's like I, I don't care, dude. If you don't want to eat seed oils, like do your thing. Provided you're not then subsequently engaging in dietary practices that like chugging butter in your coffee. Correct. Yeah. Or like uh, eating a carniv- carnivore diet that's super high in saturated fat. But if you like otherwise are like, nope, olive oil's my jam, but canola oil won't touch. I'm like, do your thing. Okay. Next question. What strategies do you use specifically to increase self-efficacy? examples of what you might say during a motivational interview or how long does this process take in your experience, et cetera. Second part of that's really hard to answer because it depends on the individual and also like what you're trying to get them to do. But the easiest way that I found to increase self-efficacy is by finding a, a like an easy win um, that somebody can achieve. So uh, in the context of pain, for example, uh, asking somebody to do a task that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do, they didn't think they'd be able to do, like, bending over for them seems like, oh, I can't do that at all. It's like, okay, well, can you, uh, you know, for example, uh, reach back and touch your butt to this wall if you're a few inches away? And then they're able to, like, hinge over a little bit. They didn't think they'd be able to do that previously. It's like, that's a win, right? They're improving the sort of ability to kind of uh, take charge of their trajectory here with respect to, like, dietary patterns, um, asking somebody, uh, you know, what do you think you can do right now? Uh, with respect to changing how you shop at a grocery store and they list a few things and sort of championing that victory like okay you can do that you are have some uh control over these modifiable factors so showing them that they already possess a little bit of self-efficacy can be get more self-efficacy and more uh and sort of furthering them down that trajectory uh so I think asking people what do they think they can do right now, what would they be willing to do, or what have they already done kind of proves to themselves that they are uh, more capable than they otherwise think and sort of gives an easy win that you can then leverage
1: to, to move further. Yeah, this is an area of some interest in the research world, and I don't think that I can confidently say we have a ton of great interventions to directly increase somebody's self-efficacy. Sure, yeah. That's not like a thing that I can just like give you. Rather, I think that when we see increases in individual self-efficacy over time, it's almost more a consequence of working with them kind of through the process. I wish I could just say, you know, have like a neuralizer for self-efficacy and just like turn it up right and just you know fix that if that seems to be a major barrier to to accomplishing what we're trying to accomplish but um, I don't view that as my uh, specific target that I'm aiming for I'm more trying to facilitate the process guide towards what we're trying to accomplish and oftentimes as a byproduct along the way we start seeing signs of increases in self-efficacy and then what I do is I as you said celebrate the wins point that out so that they can recognize, you know, that they actually did accomplish this and it ca- almost kind of snowballs from there, ideally. Yeah. You're That's showing the them I'd that, that, they, that process.
0: they can do the thing. Yeah. and Then they do more things. Yep. If testosterone is not a good indicator of potential performance, what would be a better metric to determine eligibility? Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, The internet's, internet's gonna love this one. What would be a better metric to determine eligibility for high level Olympic competition? Uh, specifically in regards to high-level uh, female competitors or trans women. I don't know, man. <laughs> uh, no, and, uh, that's my answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so I I don't know, and then also I, I have to. It's not like a excuse, but you know, my background and training, and to the extent I have expertise in this, is kind of from like a uh, honest broker of information from a scientific, a scientist sort of perspective. I'm aware of the information. I uh, continually update myself on new data that comes up over and over again to kind of update my priors and add to this sort of body of knowledge that I'm trying to, like, pass on to policymakers, people who know the process of, like, creating, implementing, and then policing a particular policy. Uh, That's... So I don't know the first thing about creating an equitable policy in this particular space. So having an opinion on what the policy should be makes me very, very nervous, mainly because what I could say might make sense based on the data that is present, but that's just from the scientific perspective, not necessarily uh, you know what you can and can't do in sport and what the knock-on consequences of that would be. So eligibility criteria right now, uh, Most sports do not have eligibility criteria for women or men, and they don't explicitly lay them out. So, for example, the USAW or their international conglomerate, the IWF, do not have specific criteria for what is and uh, who can and can't compete in the women's division and in the men's division unless you identify as a trans individual, in which case there is a whole... Process You have to suppress your hormones, for example, uh, for two years and and receive approval from the IWF that you can compete. And they have kind of their own discretion to basically deny or accept people at their leisure. They kind of leave it at that. CrossFit has a similar policy. Um, There's some other uh, sports that I detail in that article, Shades of Grey. How should they change that? Here, we don't have good definitions of what is and is not men and women in these sports. And so I think you first have to have that so it's very clear across sports. And um, I think that is the first policy that needs to be kind of made and implemented in different sports. Uh, And that way, you can kind of uh, develop further policies from that. Because right now, it's just like confusion, I think. And then that maybe leads to some more unnecessary tension. Um, And then... The final part I'll add is that there probably needs to be more trans-specific policies that uh, spell out eligibility uh, and you know plans for future sort of either divisions or inclusion or what have you. So that way, the you know the public and then also the stakeholders, so the athletes currently and future athletes have information on where are things going next, right? Because right now it just seems like everything's happening behind closed doors, and sometimes there are updates and sometimes there aren't. And uh, I think it just makes for a pretty tense situation, particularly when a good proportion of society does not agree with the other proportion of society. And so since we all can't agree on what you know, we should do, that's why there's all this tension to begin with anyway. Uh, for a good look at this and kind of similar problems that are cru- arise rather in sport, uh, Robert Pikey Jr.'s uh, book is called Edge. Is an excellent, excellent kind of treatise on a lot of different controversial topics in sport, kind of where I get some of this thinking from. But if you're asking me what we should do policy wise, I'm backing away from that question because I, I don't know. And I'm not a policymaker, and I wouldn't want to put my foot in my mouth later based on that. Yep. All right. Why does alcohol use have an odds ratio less
1: than 1.0 for cardiovascular risk? Oh, we could talk about the French paradox. So this question came from when I cited the data from the Interheart study mm-hmm. in the cardiovascular risk section, where we talked about all the things that had super high odds of increasing risk, or super high odds with uh, risk with respect to risk for heart attack in that study, the highest of which was blood uh, cholesterol levels, second of which was smoking, and then we talked about the psychosocial risk factors that were really high on that list. And this frequently comes up because people will catch that. Uh, odds ratio for alcohol use of less than one and say, wait, so that confers a lower odds of having a heart attack. And so um, most of the relationships that were observed in that study had very, very strong findings. So, you know, like when you look at things like P ratios or um, P values in, in, uh, in the studies, they're extremely, extremely low for most of those findings. The weakest relationship among them Uh, while still statistically significant was for alcohol use so that's the weakest relationship of the variables of the factors that were included in that study and so subsequently the same authors reanalyzed this data and found that uh, heavy alcohol use conferred a substantially increased risk of cardiovascular events um, and we also know from other, plenty of other uh, research that effectively any amount of alcohol use increases the risk of atrial fibrillation, which is a sort of an abnormal heart rhythm that, that patients can develop. Um, there are, of course, other risk factors for that, but um, that's another card- cardiovascular consideration. So there may be some members of the audience or, or people watching or listening who have atrial fibrillation. And if they consume alcohol regularly, that's often a target for reduction to reduce how frequently they have episodes of that or recurrence of that, for example. But here we're focusing more on the risk of something like a heart attack or a stroke, some of these major cardiovascular events that can happen. And how does alcohol use play into that? There is relatively consistent evidence that moderate use of alcohol um, does not seem to increase the risk of these things and may actually decrease uh, the risk of having uh, one of these types of events. It's unclear how exactly this happens. There's been a bunch of theories like there's evidence that for, you know, a period of time after you uh, consume the alcohol, it improves your insulin sensitivity for a little bit. It may have some impact on blood clotting, blood thinning risk. It may have some impact on inflammatory markers in the blood. None of this stuff is particularly solid at this point, but the low to moderate levels of intake uh, do seem to have maybe an association with a decreased risk of having these things, whereas high intakes, definitively increased risk, would not recommend this has been translated into guidelines saying things like, for people who don't already drink, don't recommend that they start drinking in order to decrease their cardiovascular risk. That would not be a wise decision. For people who already have health consequences from alcohol use, like liver disease or something like that, they should not drink any amount at all. For people who already drink, there are cutoffs in terms of how much uh, you consume that we would recommend you stay below to avoid exceeding these kind of thresholds. So this is usually quantified either in number of drinks per week, although that's tricky because different nations define what is a drink differently in terms of the number of grams of alcohol that are included in that beverage. Um, The kind of curve of risk that we see, the lowest levels of risk that we see are in levels of intake that are below 100 grams of alcohol per week. And so the U.S. definition of an alcoholic drink, I believe, is about 14 grams of, alco- of, of alcohol in a U.S. standard drink, which we talk about as 1.5-ounce of spirits, a, a, a regular, what, 8- or 9-ounce beer, or a normal 4-ounce uh, pour of wine. 8- or 9-ounces? 8-ounce beer. I don't Bro, know. 12-ounce 12 12, beer. Yeah, come on, man. I don't, I don't drink that right now. Sure. sure. Uh, or a, uh, uh, what, 4-ounce pour of wine, I think. Yeah. So those are kind of U.S. <laughs> definitions, and eight those are what are estimated to have... Uh, about 14 grams of alcohol, which is defined as a drink, and then 100 grams per week is kind of where we're at. So staying below that 100 gram per week level of intake is where we can say we don't think this is markedly increasing your risk, maybe decreasing your risk, but it's not worth starting drinking to get that maybe benefit if you don't already drink alcohol. So that's kind of where that came from. Yeah. I mean, just like a, a lot of the stuff we talk about, there are thresholds, right?
0: And so I think what, pe- what happens is people find out like kind of a factoid, right? Like, oh, see alcohol can reduce risk of cardiovascular uh, disease. And they're like, so all the alcohol that you want. It's like, nope, there's probably a level by which it either doesn't matter or may in fact be health promoting. And then, you know, it's threshold by which it can become harmful. Yep, It's kind of like getting too jacked. <laughs> yeah, hard to do. Hard to do, but you know, possible. Another great question. Uh, who would win in a hand-to-hand combat, uh, Austin or Jordan? <laughs> I, I I'm just gonna concede, and and here's my rationale. Okay. All right. So so look, <laughs> there are many different proxies we could use for like to predict this, and all of them would be terrible because none of them are combat specific. Okay. Correct. There's probably some sort of aggression score that may have a better like correlation, but I don't think we'd markedly differ in our
1: Okay. I feel like you might be a little more aggressive maybe but i'm just saying i just, just don't know if it's you just different. argue more he argues more we all agree with that yes yeah. okay so i one, don't d- one point for aggression for him
0: all I, right i Next. don't dis- i don't disagree but i think that is markedly outweighed buy your cardio respiratory fitness base that I do not have. Fair enough. And honestly, unless this is over in 30 to 45 seconds, like, I'm dead. So I can keep going for rounds. Yeah, or okay. just run a little bit, and then, like, <laughs> and, and my conditioning is not poor, it's just worse than yours. Fair enough. Okay. I just want everybody who was just listening to that, there was horns honking, and everything, everybody's okay. Alright, it's settled. So you would win. Okay, okay. what about, what, what the internet really wants to know, what about an arm wrestling match? We have not tested this. No, but I feel like I have a longer lever, right? Like my forearm is just freakishly long. And I feel like to the extent that I could use that. And my elbows have been problem areas right. before. Right, and my right elbow is made of well-developed adamantium, yes. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Left elbow on that golf swing, not so great. All right, my blood pressure is normally really low, around 98 over 60. And every time I've had blood work done, my total cholesterol is under 100, HDL 60. Does this mean I'm going to live to be 120 years old, or is there such thing as too low cholesterol, LDL particularly? Should I add a stick of butter to my coffee? (laughs) Uh, To answer this briefly, and I'll let Austin kind of nerd out because this is his his thing. Um, First, to address the blood pressure, that's not abnormally low. I wouldn't even register, like, second look for me, uh, unless you were symptomatic for symptoms associated with low blood pressure, although those are inconsistent in general, unless it gets really, really low. So if you had regular syncopal episodes, for example, or you were passing out uh, unexplainedly, then I would investigate that further. But 98 over 60, I'm like, okay, move, move along. Uh, as far as the cholesterol, total under 100, I mean, real most recent data does, does not suggest that for LDL in particular, there's any lower limit for LDL. Uh, that is associated with untoward outcomes, and there's multiple lines of evidence kind of supporting that. Uh, One, when you look at like rapid development that occurs during infancy, their LDL levels are in 20s and no untoward effects. They can still have rapid neurocognitive development, rapid musculoskeletal development. That all happens. In studies where they lower LDL uh, using medications, the lower the LDL is lowered, the better the people do. We just don't know how low like, if there's a threshold by which we should start changing the guidelines to make them even lower than they are currently. So The best data that we have right now suggests that the lower is better, particularly for individuals who've already had heart disease. It's less clear for people who don't have any sort of heart disease right now, but it doesn't look like they're at any increased risk of disease. Uh there's an interesting paper that literally just came out uh a race to the bottom by one of the fathers of like modern Braunwald. yeah braunwald yeah which I'll link in the
1: description below but you have anything to add on this Yeah I think that that was the point to get across there's plenty of evidence at this point that the lower those numbers go the lower people's cardiovascular risk tends to be and we have yet to see significant negative effects from something like that That doesn't mean that everybody on earth should go on medicines to suppress these things as low as you possibly can, but it means that for people who are at very high risk, it is worth getting that as low as you can. And in particular, the timing of the lowering also matters. So as I described in the lecture, this has to do with lifelong exposure to these things, mm. right? So if somebody's high risk and they're 80 years old, and then you, start to start, uh, you decide to start treating them and you lower the levels, you're probably not gonna have a very big impact because they've already had 80 years worth of exposure to these things. But when you lower these levels earlier in life, we see massive reductions in risk uh, the earlier they tend to be lowered among individuals whose levels are elevated. So no, there's no such thing as too low of, uh, of blood cholesterol levels. The other thing I would add here is that sometimes it is possible among individuals who have some other sort of disease going on, for example, somebody who has cancer, somebody who has HIV, somebody who has any number of of chronic diseases, the effects of that disease or illness itself can result in a lowering of these numbers. Um, And so that's something that sometimes is cited by people who use studies that include these patients and say, see, so low levels, you can still die pretty frequently because these patients still die of their underlying disease process. But this is an entirely separate kind of issue, separate mechanism compared to individuals who start out relatively healthy and have high levels that are then lowered over the course of their entire life compared to individuals who have high levels and develop some other disease, and then as a consequence of the disease, their levels come down. That's kind of a, a different, more complicated topic, but there is no such thing as too low, at least, that we've been able to find uh, so far. Yep. Would destigmatizing obesity then cause a
0: problem with acceptance and distortion of an actual health-related disease with multiple varied consequences? Well, I think there's likely to be multiple consequences to destigmatizing obesity, but I think most of them would be positive. What I'm getting at is, I don't know that destigmatizing this idea uh, behind obesity being this sort of character flaw or moral failing or sort of lack of willpower. I don't think that it's going to have a lot of negative consequences, meaning that everyone just accepts everyone for who they are, and that uh, which that's not a bad thing, by the way. And then subsequently leads to individuals receiving less treatment, less social support. Less medical support for reducing the risk from obesity-related chronic diseases. Like I don't, I don't foresee that happening as a consequence. I think we should accept people for <laughs> for who they are uh, and, and lend them support uh, uh, where we can. Um, the biggest argu- the biggest arguments for destigmatizing obesity is to uh, and classifying it as a disease rather again than this willpower, moral fortitude sort of uh, issue that it's currently viewed as it, but I would say only in the general public, not necessarily in the academic world, is that we can get more funding for research, we can get patients better access to not only diagnostics, but treatments, Uh, and then also the psychological, psychosocial sort of impact of uh, individuals with uh, obesity uh, likely is either uh, reduced or potentially even eliminated. I mean, just the idea of walking around um, and and interacting with folks who view you as being less than or failing or whatever, the, the, the amount of psychological stress that that imparts on somebody I mean, I can empathize, and so it would be very difficult for me to come to a logical conclusion that not classifying obesity as a disease is the right move. There are people arguing for this, or at least suggesting that it might be fine to not classify obesity obesity as a disease. Their argument points are basically like, well, we just made up what a disease is anyway, so there's no formal definition of it. And uh, to the extent that classifying it as a disease uh, doesn't necess- we haven 't seen that it 's destigmatized obesity just yet or that it increases access to, pay, uh, to treatments just yet, and those are fair points, but I think this is so new. This just happened yeah. in two thousand and thirteen um, you know' where most organizations have classified it as a disease that we haven 't yet had enough time to kind of evaluate the effect
1: Yeah, I would say this has become my like pet topic recently gets me somewhat fired up. Um, <laughs> And so let's take this question, because the question is getting at, if we destigmatized obesity, would it lead to more people just accepting obesity, and that's as if that's a bad thing, that we're going to have uh, individuals with obesity just running around, and everybody's just going to be fine with it. That's kind of the implication of the question, at least the way, <laughs> based, on, sure, based yeah. on my reading. The easiest way that I uh, uh, looked at this question is just, let's just sub out that diagnosis for something else. Sub out obesity for high blood pressure. There is not currently a stigma against having high blood pressure. People accept that some people just have high blood pressure, right, and they recognize that should be treated because that is a major risk for developing disease, right? Like, oh, this person, you know, he just needs his blood pressure medicine to keep that under control because that's what he has going on, right? Nobody views that as a moral failing. We have accepted that high blood pressure just happens. It is, it, it is worth treating. There are, of course, modifiable things that you can do to improve your blood pressure, for example. But some people, even the, all this lifestyle stuff, even if you're living a 100 percent perfect, health promoting, highly virtuous life, you will still end up with high blood pressure that should be treated in order to reduce your downstream risk of developing uh, health related complications. This acceptance among society has not led to a massive problem of people just running around with high blood pressure because suddenly it's, you know, accepted, destigmatized. We still recognize that it is th- something worth treating. The idea here, and this is the, some of the ideas that Jordan presented this weekend, is viewing obesity a little bit differently. And this is something I've been kind of batting around, this idea of it would be great if we could have a different term for it. Because obesity is one of the few conditions where the diagnosis, the term for it, is describing the sign of the condition. The accumulation of body fat itself is the diagnosis. It does not describe the underlying issues contributing to that. So as we presented, the underlying issues contributing to it have to do with uh, problems with regulating appetite and satiety, right? So having an elevated appetite, having decreases in satiety in response to a given amount of calorie intake in the context of our modern food environment. That is the driver of this issue. So it would be great if we could nix the term obesity and rename this condition something like hyperappetitism or something like that, <laughs> right? This individual, again. their condition is that they have chronically elevated appetite. And that's how it manifests is with, in the context of this environment, increases in energy intake, right? That are extremely difficult to battle and an accumulation of body fat rather than labeling them with the diagnosis of the body fat itself because that's not the underlying driver of the problem. Or perhaps they have a decrease in a satiety response or maybe they have an increase in food reward. They have a higher reward response to the consumption of a given meal compared to somebody else. So I talked to one of our attendees this weekend who is interested in gaining weight. He is relatively thin and he has been struggling with gaining weight. He says, I have no appetite. I really don't enjoy gorging myself to try to put weight on, right? Society does not stigmatize him or view him as morally inferior, right? Because he has the socially uh, favorable genetic advantage of having low appetite, high satiety response. He is viewed very favorably because he is able to stay naturally thin. You flip that, suddenly somebody has high baseline appetite, low satiety response, and they are lazy, inferior, unable to control themselves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is a problem. That's not okay. And that's not how we help people with this situation. Even among individuals who are able to self-manage their obesity, Right, to lose body fat by modifying all the variables that we talked about this weekend that can elevate appetite by handling sleep, physical activity, stress levels, food environment, consume a diet that increases satiety, uh, decreases appetite, they will still have ongoing struggles trying to battle that elevation in appetite for life. That is the condition they have. Just like the person who may be living an optimal life and has high blood pressure their blood pressure is going to be an issue for life they may need to be on lifelong medicine and people don't necessarily blame them or stigmatize them for it right but that's the unique view on obesity and again i think that there are a number of problems obviously with how it's how it's viewed and and there's generally poor understanding of this issue that's why i was kind of glad that we were able to present a very uh uh, different view on it this was the first time it was presented in this fashion uh, uh this weekend for you guys so um, we'd be interested in your feedback in terms of how it came across, how well you guys feel like you understand it, and hopefully you guys can can kind of help us with this because it's a big problem. Yep. Uh,
0: I think it'd be interesting to think about like this chicken or egg scenario, right? So you're right that obesity describes like the side symptom of the disease. So, if we renamed it as like hyperappetitism, right? <laughs> okay. So that's like the underlying root cause, right, which can lead to the sign symptom of excess adiposity, which we define as obesity. So it would be interesting to think about that. So, like, what happened first? It's, well, it's the this underlying cause, the hyperappetite or the appetite-satiety dysregulation. Then you develop the sign or symptoms, and then you can develop the complications, which are all those adiposity-related chronic diseases. So. Again, if you, I think if you destigmatize it, uh, potentially that would lead to better screening tools for, you know, is somebody at risk of developing hyperappetitism, or like this dysregulation between appetite and satiety, and uh, if that's the case, because you everyone or at least uh, more folks start recognizing this as a disease, you get more hands on deck, more bodies looking at this thing, and then I think you ultimately get better tools for screening, diagnostics, and then treatment. Yeah, yeah, very utilitarian of us. Aside from a lifter's preferences and goals, is there anything anatomical that a coach could look at to determine if a lifter would have an advantageous leverage for a specific squat or deadlift style? This is an interesting question. Uh, We've kind of answered something like this before on our YouTube channel. Um, There are anthropometric features that I can look at and have a a guess, I can hazard a guess at, uh, that somebody would prefer a particular style or maybe do better at a particular style, but I won't know until after they've exposed themselves to regular training over a long period of time. Um, So if we're just talking about like, let's see how much you can lift today, I would expect somebody with very short arms, for example, relative to their torso and lower extremities, to might pull, they might be a better sumo deadlifter, right, than a conventional puller, provided no other training has taken place. Uh, somebody, uh, for example, with really really long femurs, might do better with a low bar back squat, provided that they can rack the bar in a you know a secure position. Um, but that's just me thinking about all the fil- folks that I've coached and trained uh, throughout my my uh, my career. And that assumes no like experience or training uh, by that person pr- prior to that test. Uh, so I would feel very very, very uncomfortable predicting like, what type of style somebody should adopt based on their anthropometric uh, measurements, uh, particularly without seeing them lift, and without seeing them lift over a long period of time. So whatever style you adopt today is likely to change over the course of your training career based on changing leverages, preferences, skill development, um, and these things you unlock from exposing yourself to different training variations. Um, and I think
1: any sort of prediction I could make is just going to be weak as far as its predictive power. Yeah, nothing that I can measure on the person when they first come in is going to outweigh the combination of subjective athlete feedback over time as they train and then objective performance metrics. So I don't think it's that important to even attempt to predict. Certainly everybody would look at somebody who has gigantic long arms and say, oh, they're probably gonna be a good deadlifter. It doesn't take a genius to, to recognize that in most people, right? But as far as saying, I'm gonna force you To pull in a certain way because i think that you're built to pull this way meanwhile they may be subjectively telling me i really don't like this this is not comfortable okay i need to recognize that and accommodate for it in the the coaching or the you know the programming plan yeah so subjective athlete feedback and objective performance metrics over as you said a long period of time are going to are what will guide those decisions much more so than just looking at somebody and saying yeah i'm going to put you in this box Right. And that's even better than like any sort of screening test that we could do. Like,
0: okay, if you place your toe six inches from the wall while you're kneeling and try to shove your knee to the wall, can you touch your knee to the wall? Ooh, you're missing some ankle dorsiflexion. In that case, we need to adopt this particular squat style, both the bar placement, depth, tempo, etc. Otherwise, you're at increased risk of injury. So not only did I know SIBO the crap out of that person, one, that's all made up gibberish. <laughs> made up gibberish because it has never been validated in any particular type of controlled setting somebody who uses that type of test to predict squat stance style etc whatever may occasionally get right get that right you know or at least to the extent they can be right uh, and then they're subsequently just you know uh self-congratulating <laughs> like yeah see i did it and so the point then becomes why would you try to do this predict via anthropometry? Or why would you screen somebody for if they can do an exercise without having them do the exercise? Because that suggests that the exercise itself, doing the movement itself, is so risky, right? Or it's so important to get it right the first time that you have to do something beforehand. And none of that is true. Exercise, even resistance training, even heavy resistance training, even heavy resistance training with bad form, whatever that means, is very, very safe. Very, very safe injury rate injury incidence is very low the duration of symptoms for people who do get injured is very very short and self-limited these catastrophic injuries in general don't happen unless you happen to be a young kid and smash yourself you know over the head with the plate that you dropped okay that happens sometimes but so what i'm getting at is like why would we do this how many times have you screen somebody prior to exercise for their like physical movement
1: yeah never yeah
0: why is calcium scoring not used as a definitive metric on effectiveness of diet and lifestyle in regards to reducing cardiac event risks? Oh, good. We can talk about CAC scores. I'm you're ready.
1: Re- you, you're ready? You can start? You can, you can start with the background. and I'm going to add a little nuance at the end. Fair enough. Okay. So, coronary calcium scores, it is a kind of basically kind of like an x ray that you can get that looks at the blood vessels that feed your heart muscle. And those are the blood vessels that can get kind of narrowed, blocked up, quote unquote, and can contribute to the risk of having heart attacks. And so, when there is calcium deposited in those things, in the plaques, that can be visible on some of these kind of x ray type scans. And the more calcium that we see, that tends to correlate with higher and higher and higher risks of having something like a heart attack conversely having very very low levels in particular having a zero calcium score on one of these kind of scans is actually very reassuring in an individual who has low risk of having a heart attack in general having a zero score means like you're probably good for at least a decade and we don't need to worry about things and if you were you know you you probably don't need medications to mitigate your heart disease risk you're uh, like in pretty damn good shape for people who are at intermediate or higher risk of having uh, a heart disease, so maybe somebody who has diabetes or um, something like that, or may have symptoms concerning for heart disease, a zero score is less helpful, less convincing. Um, there are things called like soft plaque that you can accumulate that won't necessarily light up on these scans. There are some limitations to them. But as far as this question, you know, this question is asking, why is it not used as a metric of effectiveness for diet and lifestyle risk, uh, diet and lifestyle behaviors? and probably the big reason for that is that coronary artery calcium does not regress. Meaning that if you say you get one of these scans and you have some detectable coronary artery calcium and then you change your diet and your lifestyle and you get another one, it would not be expected to go down. So it's not necessarily gonna be helpful in uh, you determining whether what you're doing is helping. We have other better surrogate metrics for that. Coronary artery calcium can be super useful in helping individuals who have like a vague intermediate risk decide, is it worth me using medication to reduce my risk or not? But as far as monitoring the effectiveness of what you're doing from a lifestyle standpoint, unless your value is zero on an ongoing basis, zero, zero, zero over like, you know, say you get one done every, you know, seven to 10 years or something like that. um, Outside of that context, uh, it's not really useful to monitor the effectiveness of whether what you're doing uh, is helping, and so I would not suggest using it in that fashion. Yeah. Uh, additional nuance here: uh, athletes, particularly
0: very, very active athletes doing high, high volumes of training, so greater than three thousand MET minutes per week. Also, individuals engaged in regular high intensity training tend to have, on average, higher CAC scores. Uh, than sedentary individuals who are age-matched and matched for other uh, 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 certain uh, demographic uh, data. And the idea here is that exercise, particularly high volumes of it and very, very intense exercise, one of the adaptive processes that occurs uh, to that um, actually increases Coronary calcium. Yes, coronary calcium, just like statins do. Something related to the, this decrease in inflammation um, that happens secondary to uh, exercises, uh, uh, increase released in muscle uh, sort of muscle-related hormones, like called myokines, that ultimately decrease inflammation. Um, whole mechanism hasn't been worked out yet. But the, another issue with using. CAC scoring, in addition to it not regressing in general, is that sometimes there are peculiar findings, particularly if someone is like super, super active. So let's say someone is an ultra endurance athlete, runs multiple marathons per year, or otherwise is very, very physically active, their CAC score may not actually be indicative of their cardiovascular disease risk at all. So in general, for the gen pop, particularly individuals who are not that active, Uh, or at least not very highly active, it can be very useful. If if it's zero. If it's zero. Otherwise, it's less useful. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 Um, Particularly in an individual who's very, very active. Or taking statins, and then you're kind of like, well, what are we doing with this thing? Yeah,
1: the statins thing is interesting, because statins, as we established, have a pretty consistent 20 to 30% reduction in your cardiovascular disease risk, yet they will tend to have a modest increase in calcium on these scans. So how do you make sense of that so the scans are not perfect they have utility Uh, for anybody who's really interested in this which i imagine is probably nobody um, (laughs) there is a good paper by the national lipid association they have a statement on the use of coronary artery calcium scans that was published last year in 2020 that would be the the place to go for that
0: link in the description that's for the internet it's not for you guys Case okay okay are there any recent technology trends that show potential to improve health outcomes long term Specifically, I'm wondering about wearables and virtual augmented reality applications. Kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I know uh, uh, about some wearable tech and uh, with respect to certain disease conditions like uh, type 1 and type 2 diabetes where they effectively are giving folks nudges and sometimes shoves based on different hand motions they're making like it can sense when they're about to eat for example and they're like hey did you check like your, insulin? your hand away from your mouth or you check like your that? insulin <laughs> have you calculated your insulin like how many carbs are going to be in this meal like and it can sync up to the pump or sync up to interesting yeah okay so other interesting stuff like that on the other hand like continuous glucose monitoring is uh, effect is not new tech, but tech that's starting to make its way into the Gen Pop, which actually doesn't seem to do any benefit unless you actually have abnormal blood glucose levels, uh, particularly because the actual values are not terribly, terribly accurate with respect to, oh, if I change this aspect of my diet, do these findings accurately reflect that? So, continuous glucose monitoring, folks who don't have pre diabetes, type 1 or type 2 diabetes, tends to be a complete waste of resources and time. Um, I don't know anything about virtual reality. I'd be interested about, like, uh, some of the, like,
1: movement or pain-related stuff. I just don't know about it. Mike, yeah. do, you, do you know about that? Yeah. In general, I'm not a huge fan of the wearable tech stuff, particularly for people who are generally healthy. Um, for people with certain disease states, yeah, there can be some applications for this. The virtual augmented reality stuff, I know there's some of that happening in, like, the mental health space, uh, like oh, PTSD sure. and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Um, that can that can be helpful. Um, with respect to pain, then, yeah, there are situations with, like, VR goggles and, like, you practice bending over in virtual reality and, like, kind of helps uh, chill people out. If they have a major, like, fear, anxiety response, apprehension with bending over, that can kind of, uh, that can kind of help with that. The other, I think, aside from those specific uh, uh, examples, I think the other interesting upcoming technology trend that we've been talking about a little bit is uh, gene editing is going to be a thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, And so that technology is kind of in progress. And so I think that, um, you know, as we mentioned, the current leading cause of death worldwide has to do with cardiovascular disease as far as non-communicable, non-infectious diseases go. And uh, so I think there's actually a fair amount of resources looking into gene editing technologies focused at reducing cardiovascular disease risk, which would be obviously fairly substantial if it could uh, be done safely. So I think that that may be something that happens uh, during our lifetime, at least, since we presumably are gonna be around for a little while. So, see. I like a lot of the uh, like uh, automatic text message or
0: AI-based text message sort of interactions, that stuff that coming out, uh, particularly with respect to pain and other uh, sort of uh certain lifestyle interventions like dietary interventions so effectively you can have a full-on conversation with an AI bot that's been programmed previously and and like give you little nudges and shoves and stuff like that that'd be super accessible for folks Um, but yeah I don't know anything about VR with respect to like dietary environment for example or or getting stronger yeah but you can bet you better believe if there are some VR goggles gonna take my squat up I'm gonna get it (laughs) (laughs) all right last question is it yeah oh sick What is a training belief or recommendation that you recently changed, and what changed your mind? Oof. like So many things, I feel like. I feel like the last year of, like, having to articulate this stuff better and more clearly and really sort of bring all my thoughts about programming into, like, one collated presentation has made me kind of analyze, like, well, why do I think this? And is this based in evidence? And if not, like, What does the opposite of you know the opposite position look like? Uh, So things that I maybe used to think that are no particularly recently that I I no longer believe. um, I probably am even more confident now than training that training further away from failure has substantial benefits for not only strength but also hypertrophy. Kind of moved away from this effective rep. Sort of model. Uh, so the effective reps thing were like the closer you got to failure, the more effective those reps became because you had greater and greater motor unit recruitment, which I don't necessarily believe to be true. Um, I think now, as long as you get somewhere close to failure, you know, within four or five reps of failure, you're probably getting all the benefits there. And that for strength development, anything over 70%, you know, rep is a rep. Yes, there's specialized skills you can generate by doing heavier singles or heavier multi rep sets, but that's something I wouldn't have, you know, agreed with that necessarily. A year or two years ago, um, that's one big thing, uh, and that's why I explain like, what are these ten thousand foot view like? Uh, programming principles it's like well you need to train all the major muscle groups through a relatively large range of motion and the intensity has to be kind of uncomfortable multiple times per week rather than like you got to go to failure you got to do heavy sets of five or you got to do squats bench and deadlifts like just more inclusive uh intentionally more vague so i probably wouldn't have agreed with that even further you know five years ago i mean oh boy I'd hate to go back and, like, listen to anything I said five years ago. Yeah, I mean, we're stupid. It's fine. Yeah, just progressively less stupid. But then as time marches on, we'll get the same amount of stupid. Yeah. And so it's, like, keeping it the same. Um, let's see. Other recommendation. I mean, I think we were both probably more specialized, you know, four or five years ago than we are now. Probably in the last year, more, more similar, just maybe more vocal about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the progressive loading thing, the way we understand that now and explain it, I think resonates much, much more. So rather than forcing the adaptation and increasing stuff uh, in order to drive the adaptation, rather it's let the adaptation occur and then you can increase stuff to make it the same level of hardness. I think that's kind of like... It's not revolutionary, certainly to other people who have been in this space for a while. They're like, yeah, dude, i been saying that for years. But the way that I, it's kind of resonated with me and then how I've understood it, that's uh, probably different. Um,
1: I don't know what else anything else you think yeah I I agree with I think two of those that I would echo on on my end one would be training further from failure most of the time Uh, I think that I frequently will still do top sets in the range of you know seven eight sometimes I'll venture into nine RPE land uh, for like anywhere from one to three reps but more of my back off work is both lighter and further from failure than it used to be Uh, So that's kind of one change that that I've made. And I mentioned a few others in my post about my own training this week. I've been using a bit more uh, variation and um, accessory work than I have in the past. And I think in the past, it was something of a uh, necessity. Like, I didn't have very much time to be doing much, you know, training or accessory work or stuff like that while I was uh, in residency training. I was working just insane uh, hours and really just only had patience and time for like my main lifts and and kind of moving on. Now, obviously I'm a different stage and um, kind of have some of the time to be able to afford to do that. So I think that um, I have found that um, my tendons and things like that are somewhat happier. Although, is that due to doing more of this less specific accessory work or is it because I'm not in residency anymore? Uh, I could make a reasonably compelling argument probably for for both of those things. You would you would probably
0: go and looking back now you would say I should have just done less of the very specific stuff and more
1: of the yeah. isolation stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so if I could do if I could do a substantial part of my training career again, I would probably stay further from failure more of the time, I would still expose myself to that super high-intensity stuff intermittently, uh, but less frequent exposure to RPE9 efforts. Um, and then more of the back-off work would be staying further away from failure, not grinding, recognizing this, this idea um, that he was just mentioning, where rather than I need to add weight to force the adaptation for the next session, rather, if the stimulus during this session is sufficient, then by next session, I will be able to increase load without things getting markedly harder. That would be evidence of adaptation happening in that interim, right? Um, so it's a very different way of looking at this kind of dynamic. Um, so those are probably a couple of the, couple of the big things that um, I would say I've been viewing a little bit differently and, and experimenting with myself and with some of my trainees. And how short is your like, thing to dim To turn my screen off? Yeah. It's like 25
0: seconds. That is not acceptable. This is what I deal with. So my recommendation would be to increase the duration. (laughs) Uh, I think the the other thing, uh, I mean, you probably have to do, like if you look back over our recommendation, not recommendation history, like we have this thing published, but if you've been following us for any duration of time, you know, Things that we recommended in 2016 are much different than things we recommended in 2019, which are now tweaked a little bit more into 2021. And by the time it's 2031, a lot of the stuff's going to be different, and but further fleshed out. And I just feel like we keep getting uh, not only closer to the truth, but also, I guess, uh, better at explaining why, how we got here. So we've made more errors. That's the thing, right? I'm not necessarily... The embarrassed comment was like tongue in cheek. I'm not necessarily embarrassed about where we started, but I'm more proud of like where we've grown into, right? And so again, 10 years from now, our explanations for things are not only going to be better and more like fully fleshed out, uh, but also I think we're just going to be even closer to whatever the truth is as far as we understand how we interact with the world at this point. Or not. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Anything else? No, we did it. Very cool. All right, well, thank you guys so much for coming out to San Antonio, our first seminar back. Give yourself a round of applause. It's been a great weekend. Thank you, guys. you guys have more? All right. That's a wrap on episode 156. Again, that was from our San Antonio seminar earlier this year with Dr. Austin Baraki and myself. This is the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Before you go anywhere, leave us a five-star rating and a review wherever you're getting your podcast from. That really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can help keep so we can keep bringing you the latest nuance and health and fitness and we'll see you guys next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine podcast see you